Thanks. We live in a city. We live in a big city. So I thought I'd talk a little bit today about cities and what's going on in the world of cities. So why cities? Why are cities important? It's because we are in the midst of the most profound demographic and cultural shift in the history of humanity, namely the shift of going from urban living, rural, rural living to urban living. When we study the past, it can kind of mislead us because we tend to focus on events in the great cities of history, places like Athens or Babylon or Rome. But the truth is, until very recently, almost no one lived in cities. As recently as 100 years ago, only 10% of the world's population lived in cities. In the early 20th century, the world's population was 90% rural. Today, over 50% of the world's population lives in cities. By mid-century, 75% of the world's population will live in cities. And by the end of this century, we will have completed the shift of humanity going from living in almost entirely rural and village existence to an almost entirely urban one. This in the space of only about 200 years. NYU economist Paul Romer, uh, he says that this is sort of like human beings going from living like packs of wolves to living more like ants or termites. And that's not a very appetizing image, perhaps, but I think it shows the radical nature of the shift that's been going on in the world. Just to put a little color on it, China Daily estimates that within the next 10 to 20 years, another 400 million people will move from rural to urban areas in China alone. That's more than the entire population of the United States moving from the countryside to the city in China. Now, China has a policy of deliberately wanting people to move into cities, but even countries that don't have that policy are seeing massive urbanization. The UN is predicting that there will be an additional 300 million people in cities in India by mid-century. Africa is also rapidly urbanizing. In fact, actually, Africa is poised to dominate the world in population growth in the coming decades. There are about 1.2 billion people in Africa today, by mid-century, that's projected by the UN to double. That'll be over half the world's total population growth. And a heck of a lot of that growth is going to be in cities. So not only is the total number of people who are living in cities going way, way, way up, the sizes of cities are getting to a scale that no one ever imagined before. In 1800, which is not that long ago on kind of human scale, 1800, there was only one city in the entire world with a million people in it. What city was it? Anybody want to take a guess? London. Great guess, but no, it was Beijing. <laughs> Beijing. London got to a million pretty shortly thereafter. Today, there are over 50 cities in the United States with more than a million people alone in the U.S., if you count the regional population, which is the way to do it, not look at artificial borders. You know, I've read some analyses that kind of estimate that kind of Imperial Rome at its height had as many as a million people. So there have occasionally been these cities like a Beijing, like a Rome, that for brief moments in time had as many as a million people in them. But that was very, very, very rare. Even the biggest cities throughout most of human history were much smaller than that. For example, the population of the uh, Assyrian capital of Nineveh at the time the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered was about 100,000 people. The population of imperial Babylon was about 200,000 people. And these were huge imperial capitals that were the largest city in the world. 
at that time. Most cities were even smaller than that. So when we read about cities in history, the thing to keep in mind is what we think of as big cities were actually small cities by our standards, or maybe even overgrown small towns. Now, I've got to point out, when you look at populations of ancient cities, you know, it's not that rigorous. We don't have the, the census value, but that's sort of what, the, what various academics are projecting. But today, you know, cities uh, of a million people are a dime a dozen around the world, but we have cities on a scale that no one could have imagined in human history. There's a term called megacity that refers to cities of over 10 million people. Uh, these had never existed in the world until very recent times. In 1950, as recently as 1950, there were only two megacities in the entire world. So we, get another, we need another quiz. What were the two megacities in the world in 1950? No, actually. <laughs> we're, we're standing in one of them. So New York, and the other one was Tokyo. Tokyo. Um, Today, demographer Wendell Cox estimates that there are 37 cities around the world with more than 10 million people, and there are a lot more of those on the way. The largest city in the world today is Tokyo with 38 million people. So obviously, keeping up with all of this urban growth is a huge challenge. A few years ago, McKinsey Consulting did a study. They looked at the 600 largest cities in the world and they estimated that these 600 cities need to spend $10 trillion a year on physical capital just to keep up with growth. That's new housing, roads, water, et cetera. $10 trillion a year just to keep up with growth. And that's a problem because a lot of these cities and megacities are in the developing world in places that are very poor and don't have the money to spend on it. That includes places like Jakarta, with 32 million people. Manila, 24 million. Karachi, 24 million. Dhaka, 17 million. Kinshasa, 11 million people. Most people in the United States have never even heard of half of these cities and don't even know where they are. What country is Karachi in? Pakistan, Pakistan. What about Dhaka, D-H-A-K-A? Dhaka is the capital of Bangladesh. What about Kinshasa? It is the capital of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Very good, very good. And it's a real question as to whether or not many of these cities are ever going to turn the corner and be able to provide a decent quality of life to their residents. Historically, um, urbanization and economic growth went hand in hand. That's what we saw in, in the United States. That's what we're seeing today in China, for example. The country is becoming more prosperous as it urbanizes. But in a lot of the world today, we're seeing urbanization without growth, and that is creating huge challenges. The UN estimates that there are almost 900 million people around the world living in slums today. More than the total combined population of the US and Europe live in slums around the world, and that total's going up. Now, some of you who read you know, Foreign Policy magazine or things like that may have seen there are some economists that argue the slums are great, that slums are better than where people were living before, but I can't help but notice that those economists are not living in slums. <laughs> so it's a huge challenge from massive urbanization in the third world, and it's obviously going to have a huge effect even in the developed West uh, on us. You've probably seen on the news the pictures of those migrant boats trying to cross the Mediterranean from North Africa into Europe. Imagine what that flow is going to look like when there are another 1.2 billion people in Africa a few years from now. I've had at least 
One serious analyst tell me he believes in the future the primary purpose of developed world militaries will be repelling migration. So that's a speculation. We don't know what's going to happen. But clearly, this trend of urbanization is one of the prime movers in the world today. Now, this kind of global urbanization is not really the work that I normally focus on. If you're interested in it, I'll give you a couple names. One is that Paul Romer, NYU. He's done a lot of work on this. And like, what do you do when you're a poor city? Where do you focus your resources to try to do the most important things right? Another one is Ricky Burdett at the London School of Economics. The key things I would just take away from that is the world is becoming a lot more urban. That's one of the biggest kind of macro trends demographically that's happening in the world. We're having tremendous increase in the size of cities and megacities. And then a lot of that growth is in the developing world, where it's going to be a huge challenge uh, to address. A lot of my work focuses on America. And in the United States, we have basically long been an urbanized country. We tended to make the distinction between urban and suburban. But suburban development, as we think about it, is really just a modern form of urban development that was enabled by the automobile. That's how the government classifies it. The Census Bureau estimates that 80% of the US population is urban. So this is an already urban country. However, we have our own sort of analog to this urbanization trend. And it has been the revitalization of many of our urban centers um, after an era of significant decline. If you think back to the 1970s and the 1980s, maybe think of it as the Rust Belt era, it was a very bleak time for cities. Someone in Seattle, Seattle was in such bad shape. Somebody put up a billboard that's still kind of famous today. Will the last one leaving Seattle please turn out the lights? Chicago was in such bad shape that in 1981, the Tribune did a four-part front page cover story series called The City on the Brink. The idea is the city is about to go over the precipice into oblivion. New York famously almost went bankrupt in the 70s. And there was that daily news headline, Ford the City Dropped Dead. You did not want to go in the parks in the daytime back then. In fact, as recently as 1990, Time Magazine did a cover story called The Rotting of the Big Apple. Today, what a difference. Just look around the city. And it's not just Manhattan. Even in places like the Bronx, you can see the difference. There's that famous apocryphal statement attributed to Howard Cosell. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bronx is burning. Well, the Bronx is not burning anymore. And there may be challenges in the Bronx, but things are a heck of a lot better than they were before. You can go up there and see families out picnicking in the park, which would not have happened years ago. The cities, not the regions, but the central municipalities of New York, LA, and San Francisco are now at all-time record population highs. Cities like Boston, Philadelphia, the District of Columbia, they have rebounded from decades of population losses and are now growing again, strongly in many cases. And that's not just a population resurgence. It's an economic resurgence. These cities are back economically. New York is also now at an all-time record job high in the city. And so a lot of the problems that we run into today in cities are uh, almost more problems of success than they were in the 70s, you know, the problems of failure in the 70s. That includes things like high housing prices. There are all these people and all these businesses fighting over not very much space, and it's sending rents through the roof. Right? We read it every day in the paper. 
high housing prices, affordability, gentrification. You know, many of us are probably personally feeling the squeeze of high rents. Uh, we also personally see it every day on overcrowded subways and you know, big delays and overcrowding at the airports. Now, of course, this is not true everywhere. Places like Flint, Michigan, Youngstown, Dayton, Birmingham, Gary, Indiana, these places have basically been bypassed by this urban resurgence, and they remain deeply troubled cities. Cities went into decline in the past, in the 60s and 70s, because of basically suburbanization and deindustrialization. And this hit almost every established city the same. So almost all American cities sort of cratered right about the same time. But what we're seeing today is something very different. Some cities like New York and San Francisco are booming, maybe like they've never boomed before, and some places are being completely left behind. So what's driving that? What's accounting for that? Which we see kind of throughout our economy. We hear a lot about the, the, the two-tier economy. Well, one of the things that accounts for this is something, uh, it's about globalization, and it's the rise of what's called the global city. What is a global city? Well, there are a lot of definitions of a global city. I think it's sort of one of those things where you kind of like, you know it when you see it. The leading kind of academic theorist of this is a sociologist named Saskia Sassen. She literally wrote the book, The Global City. She talks about them as the command nodes of the global economy. Other people like to talk about things like international flight connections, world-renowned cultural institutions, tourism or media power. But the power of cities comes from the dense concentrations of talent, ideas, and capital, and the global city is where that concentration is most intense. However you want to define them, global cities are the cities known on a first-name basis around the world. New York, London, Paris, Tokyo, Hong Kong, Shanghai, etc. In Sassen's work, she says, globalization has had this effect that Thomas Friedman basically famously called the flat world. In his book, The World is Flat. It allowed companies to move factories, call centers, accounting centers, ITs, their sources of raw materials all over the world to where the work could be done the most cheaply and most efficiently. And that put a lot of economic pressure on a lot of cities and people in the United States and Europe as they're now competing with much cheaper sources around the world. But what Sassen points out is there was a sort of countervailing effect to all that. If you're a company that's got your facilities scattered all over the globe, that's a lot more complicated environment to manage than whatever thing was here in the United States. And you need a lot of help with that. You need a lot of advanced financial services around things like currencies. You need international trade lawyers, international contract lawyers. You need a lot of specialized accounting, and you know, marketing help and consultants. The people who know how to do this stuff uh, have very deep, specialized skills and experience. And you don't find those people hanging out everywhere. You find them mostly hanging out clustered with other people like themselves in a limited number of places that Sassen called global cities. New York and London are the paradigms of this kind of a global city. I'm guessing many of you in this room actually work in these type of global financial and professional services. And growing demand for this talent fueled the rise of places like Paris, like Tokyo, like downtown Chicago. But it didn't help Flint, Michigan in places like that. And that's because Flint was more 
these places were more purely manufacturing oriented. They never had the base of professional services, these high-end services that existed in these global cities to build on. So globalization basically pummeled them while it built up places like New York. And this, this partially accounts for the uneven effect we see in the world. We've also seen the emergence uh, of a similar effect coming out of the rise of the technology industry as one of the engines of American economic growth. Historically, technology was highly concentrated in Silicon Valley and in Route 128 corridor around Boston. Today, tech has expanded a bit into more cities, and it has also become more urban than it used to be. Silicon Valley and Route 128, very suburban, they're still there. Today, there's more urban tech. For example, Salesforce.com is building a 1,000-foot-plus tall uh, headquarters in San Francisco that's going to be the tallest building west of Chicago. There's millions of square feet of biotech space going into Cambridge, Massachusetts. There's been a technology boom here in New York City, uh, a lot of it concentrated in lower Manhattan. Google employs over 5,000 people in New York today. That's huge. And a lot of the tech that you see in New York is really it's technology applied to things New Yorkers already knew how to do really well, finance, media, branding, et cetera. We see this in companies like Kickstarter, like Etsy, or like BuzzFeed. And there's a heck of a lot of that going on here. And again, technology, these type of tech companies, require very specialized cutting-edge skills. And again, you can't get people like that everywhere. Those people tend to like living in big global cities, and they increasingly prefer to live in the urban parts of those global cities, which is why the firms are moving to be closer to the workers. Now, tech has benefited a broader set of cities than the global city services did. Um, so a place that wasn't a financial center like Austin, Texas, has done very, very well with tech. Even cities like Indianapolis, where I just was, uh, they're doing very well with technology. But the fact is, still, what we think of as a startup, as a tech startup, still tends to be located in only a relatively few number of cities. Again, very uneven effects. One of those cities is New York, which is now the second highest destination for venture capital investments after the San Francisco Bay Area. So we have really come on strong in tech. So we have globalization, we have high tech, creating this unequal rise of cities. And the third thing driving these big cities like New York is the increasing preference of people, especially young people, to live in more traditionally dense, walkable, transit-oriented neighborhoods. Now, this is one I want to be careful with because this is heavily oversold in the media. The fact is the majority of the population growth in the United States remains suburban. So you see some articles about like the death of the suburbs, the death of the suburban office park. Everybody's moving back downtown. That's not true. Everybody's not moving back downtown. But it is true that there is incrementally more interest and demand in living in these types of urban environments than there used to be. We can see it looking around. Frankly, many of us are probably you know, exhibit A um, in that. So that, those are kind of three factors that have really driven the rise and, and resurgence of cities like New York, but have less benefited places, again, like Flint, that never had the global financial services, isn't really a tech center, and has less of that traditional urban environment that's now in favor. Global cities aren't just resurgent uh, though economically and demographically, 
They're also, perhaps more than ever, the places where the culture is made in America. Basically, all the media that matters in the United States comes out of New York, DC, LA, and San Francisco. Around the country, the internet has gutted the newspaper industry. Even in Chicago, where I used to live, if you walked around the north side of the city and looked in the yards and what was there, you would see more New York Times, Wall Street journals than you would see Chicago Tribunes. And so even 25 years ago, it was hard to even get a New York Times in much of the country unless you had a mail order subscription. Now everybody can get it online or even home delivery. If you want to think, though, about, I'll give you a few more examples about how global cities have really powerfully transformed the American culture. Think about 1970s Seattle. It's going down the tubes economically, but culturally, it's a very rich city. It had a very uh, vibrant coffee house scene going on there, out of which came Starbucks, which revolutionized coffee drinking in America. Here in New York, you could think about something like the Stonewall Riots in 1969. It launched the gay rights movement that has completely transformed the social landscape of America. Similarly, the demolition of Penn Station in the 60s catalyzed the historic preservation movement in the United States. The High Line is a globally influential pro project, not just because it's great, which it is, but in part because it's in New York. What happens in New York matters. Maybe the, yes? Yeah, oh, okay, great. <laughs> Didn't know if I had a question. Gonna, 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 like, maybe you don't like the High Line. Some people, some people like the hate on the High Line, you know? So one of the great examples I like to use is Paris and bike share. Bike share like our city bike system. So um, it, Paris has really put that on the map, but Paris didn't invent bike share. There had been other cities that had done bike share before Paris. But when Paris installed this massive bike share system, it became almost overnight something every city in the world had to have. Right? And that's the difference. When New York and Paris do things, it, it, it kind of it puts the stamp of approval on it. It affects the world in a way that you know, a regular, ordinary city doesn't. That's the cultural power of a global city. And there are probably things going on underground here in New York right now that are going to radically change America 10, 20, 30 years from now. We might not even know what they are. But just because we live here doesn't mean we know what they are. Uh, but who knows what might be happening in right now. So what about New York specifically, since we live here? I'll share a couple um, observations about our city. First, we need to realize that New York is just different than any place else in the rest of the United States. There is no place else that has the scale and density in New York, not even close. We are a powerhouse in industries like finance, culture, media, branding, fashion, design, a lot of these industries don't even exist in the rest of the country. And if they do, they exist in a very different form than they do in New York. If we walk around Midtown and look at the names of companies on the sides of buildings, we see all of these foreign, big foreign firms who've set up shop in New York. Or we see the flags hanging off the sides of the UN missions and consulates of all these foreign countries. New York is just saturated with global in a way that other cities are not. We see it too in our large immigrant population and probably kind of a diversity that does not exist anywhere else in the country. If you ever notice, whenever a disaster occurs anywhere in the world, all the media crews dispatch a van to Queens where they find at least 5,000 people from that community 
who are worried about what's going on back home and start interviewing them. And you know, we, just got, we just got diversity on a scale that doesn't exist elsewhere. So that should inspire us to have a little humility. And even though we have this great media platform that lets us get our message out to the world, we should be cautious about doling out prescriptions to people in places that are absolutely nothing like New York. The lessons of New York are not necessarily applicable to the rest of the world. Secondly, I just spent probably 10 minutes talking about all the amazing things that are going on in the global city in New York. But New York is also the epicenter of many of the problems and challenges facing global cities around the world. I mentioned housing affordability. There's also income inequality uh, as an example. One reason that Bill de Blasio is the mayor of New York today is because he ran on this campaign theme of two New Yorks. There's a New York of winners and losers, of haves and of have-nots. There has been immense wealth generated in New York, but there are a lot of people in New York who have not found a way to tap into the economic engine of the city. This divide that people talk about in the nation, uh, this divide also runs through the, mid the middle of these global cities, and we don't always see that. There's a big divide within cities and in part, again, driven by those same forces, those same divergent economic forces that I talked about earlier. I also mentioned the diversity that everybody loves to celebrate and talk about that. But what most people in New York don't like to talk about, may not even know, New York region is the second most racially segregated city in the United States after Milwaukee. New York is more segregated than Chicago, more segregated than St. Louis, more segregated than Detroit. That's, that's a little uh, stark. Most people don't know it. Uh, the schools are also hyper-segregated. I live on the Upper West Side, which is famous nationally for being kind of this epicenter of being a politically left neighborhood. Uh, but when the schools uh, decided that they were going to redistrict elementary schools recently, you should have seen everybody coming out of the woodwork, fighting tooth and nail to make sure that their kids would not have to go to school with the kids from the NYCHA projects. In fact, my own city councilor had this to say about the schools, quote, they need to make the case that diversity is something worth getting, unquote. So a lot of times the rhetoric that people like to use in global cities doesn't match the reality on the ground and doesn't match the, the decisions they're actually making in their own life. We also have huge infrastructural needs. I mentioned the subways and the airports. We know that. Uh, we feel it every day. We need many billions of dollars to renovate and expand that. But there are also infrastructural needs you may not know about. There is an $18 billion maintenance backlog at NYCHA and really no money to fund it. And we have about 400,000 people living in public housing in New York City. Uh, that's like a decent-sized American city in its own right. So there are a lot of challenges here. You know, New York is great, um, it's, 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 but it's a, mixed, it's a mixed bag. There are great things going on here. There are also many challenges going on here that we're going to have to address in the future. But just, I guess, my last thing I would say about New York, I'll focus more on the positive, is to just say never forget how lucky we are to be able to live here. I've lived in other cities. I travel around the country a lot. There are a lot of great cities in America. There are a lot of places that Katie and I uh, could build a life for our soon-to-be family of three and be very, be very, very happy. But New York is the greatest city in the world, right? And I'm very thankful to be able uh, to get to live in this place, and I hope that you are too.
And then that kind of in the intro, I talked about, like, I basically started out life uh, in a town, of tw you know, outside a town of 29 people in a trailer on a gravel road. And now I'm able to live in New York. And I'm just very thankful for all the opportunities this country has given me, which is why I love this country and I love this city. And I want to, my work is about how do we extend that same opportunity to more and more people, more and more people. So what does that mean for us as the church in New York, in the global city? So uh, I'm not going to tell anybody what they should be doing or how they should be living. Uh, Jason left. I was going to turn it over to him, but <laughs> too late. I guess I'll have to, I guess I'll have to say it. I'll just ask a few clarifying, a couple clarifying questions just for people to think over on their own. The first one is, why are you here? Why are you here? There's really been a big focus in evangelical circles on starting churches in global cities like New York. And it makes a lot of sense. These are economic powerhouses. This is where the culture's made. And you want to be present as the church, not just everywhere, but in the epicenter of what's going on in society. On the other hand, it comes very easy for us to use that to rationalize us being here as some sort of an act of mission, when in fact is we just wanted to live in New York. Let's be honest. And I'll be the first person to tell you, I'm in New York because I wanted to live here. Um, my website's called The Urbanophile, The Lover of Cities. Uh, I wanted to live in New York, and I'm very thankful that that opportunity uh, happened. Urban church people love, love, love to quote Jeremiah 29.7. Right? We've all heard it a million times. Quote, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare, unquote. Let's be real. We were not exiled to New York. <laughs> okay. It may have felt that way to Tim Keller in 1989 when he moved here with three young kids when the city was still a war zone. Most of us cannot make that claim. For most of us, even us who have been here a while, being in New York is an immense blessing. It is not a trial to be endured like the Babylonian captivity. So I would just say we should just be honest with ourselves about that. We are among the most privileged people in the world to get to live in New York. The second question is just to ask, what does it mean to be a Christian in a global city in a place that is not exactly known for its friendliness to Christianity and Christian values? Well, kind of in my study of cities, what I would say is it's actually easier to be a Christian in New York than a lot of other global cities. Um, contrary to popular belief, New York is not nearly as secular as people like to think that it is. In fact, this may be one of the most publicly religious cities I've ever been to in the country. And I'm not sure exactly why that is, but it may have something to do with the historically large Jewish population here. There are a lot of observant Jews in the city, and that puts a lot of obligations and requirements on them. So maybe that created a different public consciousness of religion that's flowed through into basically every other religion in the city. Just as one example, Good Friday is basically a holiday in New York. You know, in the rest of the country, Good Friday is just another day. I was in Charlotte, uh, Charlottesville, Virginia on uh, Good Friday at a conference. You would have never known it was Good Friday. Never got mentioned. Nobody slowed down once. It was just another day. I've never been to a place where religious holidays uh, enjoy such public observance uh, as they do here in New York. Tony Carnes, who runs a phenomenal website called A Journey Through New York City Religions, nycreligion.info. It's a phenomenal site. If you haven't been there, you should check it out. He likes to say that New York is America's first post-secular city. So you can take that for what it's worth. 
Um, however, we can see that Christianity is increasingly in conflict with the culture. And if this is the place where the culture is being made, where the cultural engine exists, you know, we should expect that this is going to be a place where that conflict may be more intense than it is in other cities. You probably heard about Tim Keller recently having some problems at Princeton Seminary. So Princeton Seminary is where our own Jason Harris went to school. They were going to give an award, the Abraham Kuyper Award, to Tim Keller, and he was going to give a lecture. And then various people at the school, alumni, et cetera, protested this, saying he was a misogynist and many other things. And Princeton rescinded the award, although Tim graciously gave a lecture anyway. That would not have happened even two years ago, most likely. Clearly, something has happened. There's a little bit of a change in the air that I think people can sense. And the default mode of engagement by the urban church in the last couple of decades has been something called irenic. People know what irenic means? Irenic is a style oriented towards peace, moderation, and reconciliation. And Tim Keller really embodies that and has done a lot to really popularize that model. The idea is let's winsomely engage with the culture rather than gratuitously picking fights with it in the style of the old Jerry Falwell religious right. And that style worked for a long time. I'd say 20 to 25 years it did great in urban environments. I'm not convinced it's going to continue to do as well in the future, at least not in terms of keeping people from getting attacked. I mean, Tim Keller has done everything in his power to avoid offending people while remaining faithful to God's word, and yet they attacked him anyway. And something tells me none of us are as rhetorically sophisticated and as good at navigating the cultural waters as he is. So if it happened to him, we, could, we should expect that it can happen to us too. And then we have to decide what to do about that. Now, that doesn't mean that we should um, you know, abandon the ironic strategy. Again, I'm not telling people what to do on that. But the expectation I would set with everyone is that don't think that we can live in the global city, that we can live in New York, and that we can just kind of keep our heads down and do a little dance, and all of a sudden all these conflicts and things are just going to blow over us and it's never going to affect us. It very much could affect us at some point. And then, we, again, we have to be prepared for how we're going to do that, how we're going to respond to that in this world, particularly those of us, like myself and like others, who are in the public arena in the public square. So that's something I would just say, this is the tip of the spear in the culture. So to the extent that Christianity comes in conflict with the culture, being in New York City, part and parcel of that is helping everyone else and helping the rest of the church figure out how to navigate those conflicts. And that's part of, I think, the invigorating, uh, the invigorating environment that comes from living here in the church in New York. So I'd leave you with that, and then I'll see if I have any time. I think I do have some time for a couple questions if anybody has any. Thanks.